My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Brooke Pileggi, OMS2 at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. In April of 2022, the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, otherwise known as AACOM, graciously invited the DO or Do Not podcast to attend their national meeting, Educating Leaders Conference in Denver, Colorado. Our two producers, myself, as well as Lerone Clark, who is an OMS2 at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine, as well as Ben Berg, our pre-medical student liaison, attended the conference to continue our mission of promoting awareness of osteopathic medicine by interviewing leaders in the field. We would like to thank Dr. Robert Kane, president of AACOM, Joseph Shapiro, director of media relations, and Helene Cameron, vice president of medical education services, for having us at the conference and supporting the podcast. Personally, I had an amazing experience and would recommend the conference for any medical or pre-medical students interested in learning more about the inner workings of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic medical education. On this episode of D.O. or Do Not, we have Dr. Joel Dickerman, who is the current dean of the newly established Kansas College of Osteopathic Medicine, the first osteopathic school in Kansas. Dr. Dickerman will discuss the new campus in the city of Wichita. He will discuss what makes the school special, including innovation in education, including virtual anatomy lab, and a team-based approach to learning. He discusses some of the benefits to students looking for population management and impression experiences that they may not get elsewhere. He explains the pros of attending a new school and helping to shape the future of the educational experience. He talks about the diverse clinical opportunities which are open to students while in Kansas. Dr. Dickerman shares his unique journey and how being treated by an osteopathic physician while in high school changed his trajectory from becoming a teacher to that of becoming an osteopathic physician and finally coming full circle as a dean of an osteopathic medical school. Welcome to the DO or Do Not podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Joel Dickerman. He is the Dean of the Kansas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Glad to be here. Kansas College of Osteopathic Medicine, this is a newer school, is that correct? It's brand new. For any of our students listening that are thinking about osteopathic medical school, can you discuss some of the pros and cons of choosing a newer versus a more established osteopathic medical school? I'd be happy to. I'll start with the cons. And the reason I bring that up is this is a big question students have. One, you don't have a track record. So it's hard for students to say, well, how well do your students do on boards? How well do they place in residence? You don't have that track record mm-hmm. to provide that evidence. So I think that's a very common question for students. The second one is being new. You know you're going to have some bugs <laughs> and being in that first class or two. There'll be some ups and downs that you'll be part of. I think the converse of that is we have found a number of students really enjoy that pioneer position. They would like to join a school where they can help influence the curriculum as it's being built and developed, provide that feedback. A second benefit is when you're the first class, you have all the faculty to yourself. And COCA requires us to be building in the faculty 
really staffed up almost to the point where you take a full-size class. So it's not just you have access to all the faculty, but we have an initial class of 85. Our maximum class size will be 170. So you'll have money opportunities for one-on-one education and training. Definitely some trailblazers would do very well. That's a question we ask. Some students want to be trailblazers, others do not. And that helps the selection process. As For our pre-medical students listening again, can you tell us just about the school in general? Maybe start with describing the campus, the general location. The campus is actually in right now down Wichita. It was an old department store that literally had been gutted. It was just an empty building. It's nice. It's in an area in downtown Wichita that's under redevelopment. Very exciting. We have ArcCom. We occupy five floors in this building, almost 120,000 square feet. They're building a culinary school right across the street. Um, and so I think you're going to see not only revitalization, but a lot of energy about around education, a diverse and younger population mm-hmm. in downtown Wichita, which wasn't there. So that's exciting that we're part of that renovation. What do you think makes your school special, and why should a student consider KHSCCOM over maybe other schools? Yeah. I, I think... We have really tried to do innovation in our curriculum. And by innovation, we look at it from two perspectives. One is how we deliver the curriculum. For example, we're doing a non-categoric anatomy lab. And it's, mm-hmm. yes, it uses virtual anatomy. VR uses augmented reality. But it also has a lot of clinical application, reading CT, MRI, ultrasound, using that clinical correlation. And then correlation with physical diagnosis and osteopathic medicine. So that's the anatomy. We have very few lectures. Most of the education is in a lab or team-based learning environment. So that really promotes working together and learning together. And I, we feel that it's just not quite as threatening of an environment. And we really want, like all medical schools, once students get in, our goal is to help you succeed. It's not to fail you out. And I think that's that's difficult for students and even some faculty to learn. You're there <laughs> to help that student learn. The other part is we have some innovative topics. We have a dedicated two-year track in population health. Because as we could see from the pandemic, dealing with populations is just as necessary as an individual patient. So that's actually a two-year track that students will enter in. And they will get exposure in their first and second years in the community with some underserved populations and some immersion activities so that they can really experience what it's like to take care of a population, not just an individual patient. I was fortunate enough, I served as a medical director for a Medicaid project in Colorado, and we served 160,000 patients. And during that four years, it taught me a whole new perspective of how you deliver care, looking at social determinants, those issues that greatly influence not just an individual, but perhaps all patient population. And really learn the importance of that. So we wanted to incorporate that in our curriculum. Do you think you're going to get a lot of students who are from Kansas? What are your thoughts on that? We're in the application process. We have, In fact, we finished accepting applications for this cycle, and about 25% of our applicants have been from Kansas. We certainly want that to be higher, but we understand that it takes time to build. Without any DO school in Kansas, there has never been a DO school in Kansas, People are used to leaving the state if they want to go into osteopathics. So it just takes a little bit of retraining. But we're pleasantly surprised to have at least 25% of our applicants um, be from the state of Kansas. What are KHSC affiliates and what types of hospitals do students rotate through? We have three major areas. One is the 
general Wichita area. There are two uh, level one trauma hospitals in the community. Uh, so we have our students rotate in those hospitals and with the physicians in the community. We also have a region in Garden City, which is southwest part of Kansas. The reason we want to have our students there is that's a huge need for future physicians. But it's a full-scope hospital. But we want to give our students an opportunity to see parts of Kansas that everybody thinks Kansas City is Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the northeastern part, and most of Kansas City is in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So it's just getting students exposure to that. And then similar to Hayes, Colorado, where we'll have our students be in those three zones. All of our students will do all their core rotations, their third year rotations in the state of Kansas. They will go as a group of students. So when okay. they go to Garden City, and then the students will spend the year in Garden City doing all the rotations. So we're trying to minimize the travel mm-hmm. and actually maximize the experience. So one of the problems we've seen with students is if you go from one rotation to another facility, you've got to start, you have to learn to do an EMR, new system. And mm-hmm. our intent is to have the students get into that system and then stay there for a year. So what are your primary roles and responsibilities as the dean of a medical school? And in your position, what are your main interactions with medical students? I want to be very much a hands-on Dean, I, I yeah. did not accept the job. I said, I will not accept it if I can't help teach. Mm-hmm. So I do have a teaching role for the students. And so I will be working with students firsthand. That I've spent 35 years <laughs> teaching in osteopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to give that up. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the number one responsibility I had was to get all the pre-accreditation processes in place and get approval by COCA, put together the faculty, make sure the building's ready. It literally is making sure that we're ready for students and can deliver a high-quality curriculum in year one. But certainly, I, as I say, I'm the band leader, but the talented people are actually the faculty and the actual people in the orchestra that are going to accomplish those tasks. What factors played a role in your decision to be involved in academic medicine? You said that you were teaching for years and years. so It was just serendipity. My very first when I graduated my residency, I was hired by the hospital, and I was immediately asked to oversee a primary care residency. So I got involved with teaching um, hospitality right. residents from year one. Mm-hmm. And I've always taught residents. I was a program director in family practice, so we had a lot of students rotate through this. I actually served as a director for a couple of fellowship programs, and I've been involved even in continuing medical education for practicing physicians. So it's just been part and parcel of my practice. And you seem very dedicated to it. I enjoy it. And so do you still see any patients clinically? I don't now. Part of the, one of the requirements for a dean is that it has to be a full-time job. Now, we don't have our own clinic. If we had our own clinic, I could see patients as dean in our clinic, but we don't have one. And part of that was we didn't want to duplicate services in the community. We have a great opportunities for students in the community. I've been very pleasantly pleased by the how well we were received by Wichita and how many physicians wanted to take students. Since you don't currently see patients clinically, is it something that you miss? I do miss it, but that was one of the reasons I returned to academic medicine. And of interest, I've always been very clinically oriented and taught students one-on-one in the clinic. And now I'm going back and saying teaching the foundational biomedical sciences is quite interesting to go back to the basic physiology and pathology anatomy and relearning that Mm -hmm. and saying, now I know why you you learned this. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. tedious, but so I don't practice that, but I enjoy the idea of making all of this very clinically relevant. 
I mean, we're, we have clinicians that will be teaching beginning in day one. So everything from a biomedical science is tied to a clinical scenario or a clinical presentation mm-hmm. and prepare you for your clinical rotations. Now we just like to shift gears and talk a little bit more about your journey. Can you tell us where you went to college and when you decided to become a physician and specifically an osteopathic physician? I went to Chicago Osteopathic when it was Chicago Osteopathic in downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's now become Midwestern University. Okay. And that moved out to the suburbs and then has a, a branch campus in uh, Arizona. But it was, I think there was 15 comms when I went to school many years ago. Yeah. But, um, but what got me interested, and in, when I was in high school, I, and I think this is part of the teaching, I was going to be a teacher. That's what I wanted to do. And I became ill in my sophomore year of high school. And it was a typically bad cold. You know, there wasn't much to be done for it. And I saw the physician a few times, missed some school. And finally, my mom said, why don't you see this osteopathic physician and see if that'll help. And very fascinating. He, he trained in 1920s. He was still practicing when he was in his 70s. And he had treated many people that had the, the initial flu outbreak and new techniques wow. that would help. with our, And so, I mean, he just made an, a physical impact on me, helped me get better quicker, get back to my school. Or, and we just began a friendship after that. And just, I think that impact and his mentoring is what led me to decide to pursue a career, a career in osteopathic medicine. And that's that's all I I didn't even consider allopathic medicine. I just wanted to be an osteopathic physician after seeing what he did. What was your experience like in osteopathic school? It was interesting. I'm glad it changed, but it there was not the intensity for board exams that there are is now. I mean, it was just a given that everybody would pass their board, so that was a plus. Our clinical rotations, though, it was trial by fire often. You were assigned floors when you're on a medical floor. It was not uncommon for you to work 36-hour shifts and work six days a week and put in close to 100 hours as a student. When you were on call at night, you did all the EKGs, drew all the bloods, put up, did all the IVs. So it was very grueling, and a lot of us didn't enjoy that part. But I can actually say when I then became an attending physician and actually worked a lot of emergency rooms, I mean, if somebody was in trouble, I could put an IV in. I could learn those skills, those basic skills that if I didn't have them, I would have had to wait for somebody else to do them. So in the long run, it really paid off. So what main factors played a role for you in deciding a specialty? How did you ultimately choose? My mentor was a family physician. And he was trained back in the day when all she did was manipulation. That's full licensure wasn't until the 50s. And so he was never licensed to full practice. I was very interested in doing manipulation and full scope family practice because of that exposure and just being able to treat anybody. So that's how I got into the specialty. And that hands-on component was very important for you. I think you have to remember too, when I trained, this was in the early 80s, that about 20 to 25% of graduates from medical school, particularly the U.S. schools, went into practice after a one-year internship. I mean, it wasn't unexpected. And so I think there was just a high degree of people entering primary care. And we still see that. And how did you go about choosing residency program? What factors were important for you? Two. One was location. I wanted to, for my family, so staying regionally was important to me. Mm-hmm. But also, it, it was interesting. Our medical school was 100 students. We had a lot of residents. We had a lot of fellows. So often, you were in line. And so I really wanted to go to a program that was smaller. Where I went, there was only six interns, and you had two residents. And 
I got to do more as an intern than some of the, my colleagues that are in internal medicine residencies because you were it. That's a very good point. I don't know if many people think about that. Speaking of your residency, how was that experience overall? If you could speak more on that. It was good. The difference I think we see now, and this was for both allopathic and osteopathic residencies, is that most family practice residencies were based in the hospital. You did you got very little clinical practice. So you got very good at hospital skills, but then when you graduate and you're suddenly thrown in an office setting, you kind of feel lost. As a program director in family practice, that became a lot more balanced. I mean, it's family practice residents, their first year, they have to spend an equivalent of one day per week in the clinic, and then it goes up to two days and four, you know, three days. And so you're, you have to learn both environments, which I think is good. How has being an osteopathic physician impacted your personal philosophy and practice as a whole? I do believe that, uh, and again, I see this one, we're revisiting basic physiology is mm-hmm. the, the body's ability to to correct itself, to respond, I think that's overlooked quite a bit. And, and I th- again, I think the pandemic demonstrated that, that we didn't have anything to fix it. So what we had to learn was, can we supplement the body's own capacity to recover? And how do we do that? And I think that's had a huge impact of, A, we can't fix everything, but perhaps we can nudge somebody in the right direction so that their own body will recover. The other part of it is that you really do learn the, the importance of individualization of medicine. You see it now, I think, with precision medicine, where we're using genetics to determine which people will respond to a drug, which people should have this test or should not have that screening test. And again, I think we're seeing a degree of variety in patients. And I think recognizing that and that people are going to respond differently and have different needs that was a lot of the osteopathic philosophy that I learned. What is one attribute about yourself, you may call it your superpower, if you will, but do you feel helped you become successful as a physician? It took me a while to learn it, but just being curious and taking advantage of opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's unusual, but how did I become a dean? You are aware of these opportunities and don't be afraid to say, okay, I'll apply and try. And the other one is I'm not afraid to fail. That is a big lesson I think we're trying to teach our students, unfortunately. There's so much emphasis on grades and achievements that I think a lot of people are afraid to try things because they're kind of afraid to fail. And the only way you get better is controlled failure and making students understand that's okay. I want you to fail in the first two years and learn the stuff so you don't fail when you're seeing a patient. Because I've asked students, what are you going to do when you fail your first test? And I've had students say, I've never failed a test in my life. And so my response is, what are you going to do when your first patient dies? You will have a failure. It's out of your control. But you better learn how to respond to that. And it's that response and that resiliency to that event. Your patients know that you'll never give up on them. Your patients know that if something goes wrong, you'll be honest with them. That's important. So our last question for you today is, can you share one piece of advice that you were given by a mentor that you felt is most impactful that you'd like to pass on to other students listening? I think it really is follow your passion. Medical school is very grueling. It's, it takes a long, a long time. And I've seen people enter medical school for the wrong reason. But if they can develop a passion for it, it's great. But if you lose your passion and your desire to want to care for somebody else, it, it becomes a job. And most people that go into medical school, they would like it to be a career for 20 or 30 years. Enjoy it. And, and you can, but it's keeping that passion alive that you keep remembering why you're doing it. And it's 
again, if you're going to make a good living, you will. You'll have be treated very nicely. But I think that the real lesson you learn is it's not about personal achievement. It's about watching your patients get better. And very few people in professions have that opportunity. It sounds like you are really instilling that into the mission of your school as well. It's hard, but I want students to enjoy it. I want them to go back and say, you know, that was hard work, but it was worth every minute of it. Thank you so much for your time and really enjoyed speaking with you and getting to learn about your school. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to do or do not.